Amen. So, we come now, and it seems that we've been in this series forever, to the Sixth Commandment. In more modern translations, it reads, you shall not murder. In more ancient translation, translations, you shall not kill. Now, it's fairly obvious how this commandment relates to the previous one. Honoring father and mother, we said, is about honoring life. And here, that becomes explicit. The commandment protects human life. And so it's incredibly straightforward, the commandment is, yet it raises more questions than it answers. The most obvious ones being, what does the commandment mean in relation to war? What does the commandment mean in relation to law enforcement or to self-defense? The less obvious questions being, Ones like, what does the commandment mean in relation to assisted suicide? Something that only has risen in the last, you know, uh, half century or so. Or infanticide, or manslaughter, or any number of other issues that are kind of swirling in the air at the time. So the moment we begin to think about the commandment with any degree of seriousness, what it means not to depending on your translation, murder or kill, these incredibly complex issues rush into the picture. And so I want to get into the weeds, and really not that I want to, I don't want to, but I think we need to, but I want to save that uh, for next week. One, because I need more time, I'm currently lost in the maze, and two, because we need to consider the commandment more broadly before we can get into the weeds without losing our way. And that's what I want to do this morning. Just take a step back, right? Leave all the debates, all that other stuff aside, and just consider the commandment in its widest possible context. What does it mean? What is being said here? That's what we'll do. And as I've noted, scholars cannot come to agreement on the most fitting translation, either kill or murder. The reason being because the original word... Um, which I won't try to pronounce, has a semantic range, a wide semantic range, rather. It can refer to murder, but it also can refer to manslaughter, among many other things. So it's not too precise, the word uh, that were, that's used here in the commandment. So whether it's kill or murder, the meaning of the commandment is changed, if ever so slightly. Murder is quite narrow, and kill is obviously more expansive. And it seems, at least to me, that each scholar appeals to their, um, prefers to either uh, of the senses to promote their preferred reading. So pacifists would prefer the term kill, and non-pacifists would prefer the term murder. And so I want to, again, at least for this week, set aside the semantic debates, because We're not going to come to an agreement either. And approach the commandment from a different angle, which in my opinion, yields greater insight. The commandment is not so much detailing, or rather it's not so much interested in detailing um, what, if any, types of killing are permitted. But it's interested in something else instead. Political theologian William Kavanaugh He puts it this way, the subject of the verb to kill is you, 
the human member of the Israelite community. The speaker, he says, is God. What the commandment establishes is an absolute divide between God and humans in the issue of killing. If we humans must not kill, he says, it's not because killing as such is always an evil deed. It is because killing belongs to God and not to us. So, the intense debate around what types of killing are and are not permitted by the commandment is not unwarranted, but the commandment's basic claim lies elsewhere. You shall not murder. You shall not kill. God alone has the authority to take life. So human sovereignty on this issue cannot even begin to try and answer the question. It's simply out of our jurisdiction. You shall not. Only one is wise enough, just enough, pure enough to arbitrate over such matters. So what the commandment establishes is the difference of, the, of, of authority over life and death between us and God. So the human task is not to provide a detailed list of what types of killing are authorized and not authorized. There is no such list of the Ten Commandments, but to recognize, quite simply, that life is not ours to take. Life belongs to God. That prerogative is His alone. And that is no insignificant point to make in our day, given the ever-increasingly callous attitudes toward life. It's no coincidence that our barbarism comes on the heels of the abolition of any authority higher than ourselves. Human life isn't accountable to some creator, but it's within our power to do with it as we please. We become, in a sense, like God, passing infallible judgments over life and death. And so unaccountable to a supreme authority, our most anti-life tendencies, veiled under the guise of reason and science, are emerging once again. For a time, the commandment suppressed those tendencies, the law of charity being the law of the land. But as the faith, that upon which human dignity is established, as that faith recedes, inevitably, it seems, so too will human dignity. Assisted suicide, infanticide, human bioengineering, these things are not the product of the Christian moral imagination, but one that sees human nature as a technology, not as invaluable in its dignity, but something to be improved upon. Right? Like any technology, it can be improved, and it can be advanced, and it can be taken in new directions. And of course, lesser models, lesser manifestations can be eliminated in the sake of progress. That's really another issue. I want to come back to where we're talking about just a second ago. There is clear evidence. Let me back up. We've talked about this division, right? God's authority. He's the only one who has authority to take human life. 
you shall not kill us standing on the other side. And yet, there's clear evidence in the scriptures that humans are allowed to kill other humans. In fact, in certain times and in certain places, it's commanded, right? Yes, it's commanded. And therein lies our next point. Humans cannot simply take life acting on their own initiative, but only according to the will of God. So humans can't take life on their own initiative, but only according to God's will. In other words, the only type of killing that is allowed is that which is directly sanctioned from above. So I want to turn now to the covenant that God makes with Noah after the flood, where for the first time, God authorizes one man to take the life of another. This is Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, if you'd like to turn there yourselves. It's a fairly long passage. It says in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He says, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Okay, this is new, right? This was not the case in Genesis 1. So now humans are permitted to eat um, or to take the life of animals for sustenance. He says, I give, I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And then listen, he says, And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. So here... After the flood and the covenant that God makes with Noah, one human is permitted for the first time to take the life of another human. Now, it happened before, but it wasn't sanctioned like this, right? It wasn't put into law like this. And so we have to ask, what is this legislation grounded in? Again, it's the divine will. The matter of taking life is not left to man's Caprice and arbitrary judgment, it's sanctioned by God. I will require the life of man. So humans are made in the image of God, as the passage explicitly says. And therefore, that life, their life belongs to God. And it may not be taken by a human acting on his or her own initiative. The authority to take life is the Lord's and His alone. And humans can only take life when acting under that authority, right? When carrying out the divine sanction. In the scriptures, that's the only time that killing is prohibited, or is allowed, rather. And so that insight 
will form the basis of our sermon next week because then that's where we talk about the government and law enforcement and all that other thing, all those other things. They fall under that branch. But we're going to leave that for now. Right now, what I want to do is set the, the covenant that God makes with Noah in its wider context. So the promise that undergirds the covenant is that despite man's relentless unrighteousness, right? We know the Genesis 6 story and it's just terrible thing after terrible thing. Violence fills the land. Um, despite all that, the Lord promises that he will never again destroy humanity like he did. He says, I will establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never be cut off. So the covenant, what we find there in Genesis 9, makes room for humanity's ongoing existence. Right? That's what it's about. That basically we'd have a, a, a playing field in which to operate and God's not going to destroy things again. So there are stipulations, however, attached to the covenant. Humanity is promised to endure, but in order to keep things from devolving into those pre-flood conditions, the wickedness of man was great on the earth, the passage says, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So to keep things from falling into that state again, a new order is established. And it's this, retributive justice. Right? If by man's blood, if he sheds his blood, by, his, by man, his blood will be shed. So when we come to Genesis 9, we've left the innocent and pristine created order far behind. The covenant that God makes with Noah is not so much about peace. It's rather about managing humanity's wickedness. And the legislation that sanctions retributive justice has nothing to do with pre-fall conditions. And it has everything to do with a deeply corrupted human race. So the point is this. The divine sanction permitting one human to take the life of another is an accommodation to post-fall conditions. It was never intended to be that way. But as sin began to develop and take root and to multiply, God institutes what we find in Genesis 9, Um, as an accommodation to that. So there's a certain pragmatism about the covenant. Under the conditions of the fall, violence can never be completely or even partially eliminated. It can only be managed. And that by more violence. Right? Violence is managed by sanctioned violence. So the situation is far from ideal. And so the myth that peace can be established through force, is simply untrue. Unlawful force countered by lawful force never creates peace, but again, merely manages conflict. It's not a genuine means of redemption. The heart remains what it is, only evil continually. It's simply cowed into submission by greater force. And so I bring that up just to make this very basic point, that that peace is more foundational is a more foundational reality than violence. All things were created very good. In the creation, there was no room for death or killing or anything of that ilk. All was the Hebrew word shalom, 
All was peace. All was good. All things began in shalom, and in the end, all things will return to shalom. The scripture says that when the branch from the stem of Jesse returns, this is Isaiah 11, you guys know the famous passage, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you see the picture where things are headed. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That's where it started. That's where it's going to end. And so death and destruction in their many forms are secondary and contingent. It's not the way things really are. Peace is at the true heart of things. In peace the world began and in peace the world shall end. And so right now, between those times, we live in this Suspended middle, where violence rules the day. So again, the old covenant legislation, to return back to our point, where force is authorized to combat force, there is, an un, there is a qualified, rather, accommodation to the way things are. So Deuteronomy 19 speaks for the whole. This is 18, verses 18 through 21, Deuteronomy 19. It says, the judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So again, no bleeding heart sympathy here, just literally pitiless retribution in order to sustain the social order. And the principle, again, is proportional justice. Whatever the perpetrator has done or whatever he intended to do shall be returned on his head. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Proportional justice. So, it's more about order... Maintaining the status quo, restraining wickedness, than it is about peace and reconciliation, right? We're dealing with two different things um, in the, the covenant made with Noah and later on. So, the various teachings in the Old Covenant that revolve around killing and murder are accommodated to the conditions of human wickedness, but... This isn't a cheapening of that teaching, right? It's simply recognizing and extending an insight straight from Jesus. You guys remember these words. This is Matthew 19, verses 7 and 8. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Those are the Pharisees, right? They're questioning Jesus. It says, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not this way. 
So the Mosaic legislation upon which the Pharisees staked their claim, Jesus says is trumped by the beginning. He says, Moses permitted you to do that, but that's not the way it always was, nor the way in which God intended it to be. It was catered to the hardness of humanity's collective heart, and therefore its authority is only partial. It's not ideal, but it was compromised from its very inception. And in Jesus' teaching, right, we're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. When Jesus comes on the scene, we find no such accommodation in any of his teachings to human wickedness. Right? There's nothing that, that kind of tailors itself to the conditions of the fall. It's totally different than that. G.K. Chesterton, in his classic, The Everlasting Man, says that Jesus' teaching is out of time. Now he brings up this claim in objection to the person he calls the free thinker, who says that Jesus was in fact a man of his time. And that because he was a man of his time, we cannot accept his ethics as final for humanity. In other words, his teaching is conditioned by its time. That's what he would say about Jesus. It's a product less of eternal truths, but more of the circumstances and attitudes of first century Judea. And therefore, it can't possibly be relevant for us today, right? That was good for them, but not for us now. It was bound to that time, but there's no way it can apply to us now. And so Chesterton then goes on to make a comparison between Jesus' teaching on the one hand and that of the other great religious teachers on the other. And he shows that Jesus' teaching is much more inflexible and idealistic and impossible than theirs ever was or ever could be. He says, speaking of Jesus' teaching... It is certainly not the morality of another age, but it might be of another world. So it's not bound to that time, but he says, but it might be from somewhere else, from another world altogether. And of course it is. Jesus' teaching is not bound to a particular time or a particular situation, but it's from beyond time. Remember, Jesus comes on the scene heralding this apocalyptic message. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The decisive moment to which human history had been steadily advancing has arrived. The time, Jesus says, is fulfilled. It's here, it's now, and a new thing is at hand. Breaking into the world from above, the kingdom of of God. It's not distant, but it's right here. It's right at the very doorstep, Jesus says. And so the kingdom of God is at hand and it's accompanying accompanied rather by new teaching to match it. Jesus announces the kingdom and then he gives teaching consistent with the kingdom. Hence the sermon on the mount. And as we come to the latter half of the the Ten Commandments, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount because, well, it's Jesus' teaching on the Ten Commandments. And so what we find there is that it's teaching no longer accommodated to the hardness of the human heart, but the kingdom of heaven. Whatever was permitted in the past has been supplanted by something new, 
So Jesus, in the sermon, he quotes the old law, and he'll say, you have heard it said. And then he'll say, our passage today, or he'll say uh, uh, any number of other things. There's five of them in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said, but then he asserts his greater authority. But I say to you. So, such and such a behavior may have been permissible before. A minimum standard may have been laid down for all to adhere to, but now things are different. I say to you. And it's not that in Jesus' teaching that the old covenant is abolished. Rather, it's fulfilled. He says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. The commandments are not set aside, but plumbed to their greatest depths. Jesus sees beyond the mere letter of the law to its spirit. As the Apostle Paul says, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So he cracks through the, the, the shell of the law's literal statutes and extracts the kernel of their inner meaning. And so Jesus brings the commandments to their fulfillment. His, but I say to you, is really what the commandments have been about from the beginning. We've simply been too deaf to hear what they're saying. So he's not relaxing the law. Actually, it's just the opposite. In his own way, he's intensifying the law's greater intention. He's taking it from the level of a mere statute. Do not murder, do not kill. And he's driving it down into the innermost recesses of the heart. So getting back to our point, our Chesterton point rather, Jesus, his, his teaching is out of time. It doesn't adhere to the present evil age. There's no sense in which it's accommodated to the way things are, but rather it comes as a bolt from the blue. I mean, read the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes. There's no sense in which those Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn, right? all, all, all the Beatitudes, there's no sense in which that in any way resembles what this world is like. It's in fact the very antithesis of what this world is. So Jesus' teaching comes again as a bolt from the blue. It comes from heaven. It comes from the kingdom of God. It comes in reality from the age to come. It's not rooted in this world. It's rooted in the way things will be. And so here's the point that we've been building to. Jesus' teachings, particularly those around, uh, revolving around the sixth commandment, make absolutely no sense apart from their rooting in the kingdom of God. As things stand, apart from the kingdom of God, the counsel to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to not resist the evil man and to bless him and to pray for him rather than retaliating against him, that's simply bad advice on merely worldly terms. It's just bad advice because that's not how things work. Scholar Richard B. Hayes puts it this way, if the logic that ultimately governs the world is the imminent logic of the rule of this age, then the meek are the losers, and their turning and their cheek turning only invites more senseless abuse. And so according to the logic of this age, that's exactly right. Meekness and gentleness, more often than not, don't deter violence. I certainly don't know any situation that's ever been the case, but they invite more of it. <laughs> 
Think of Jesus' own crucifixion. To keep people at bay, according to the logic of this age, what's needed is simply greater strength and greater force. As a popular movie character once said, peace is having a bigger stick than the next guy. But here's the thing. Here's what we're trying to say before we move to Jesus' words. The church doesn't operate according to the logic of this age, right? We're not bound to this age, but the kingdom of God. And Jesus' teaching only makes sense within that context. He's not merely a nice guy. His teaching rooted in some naive idealism. No, his word is rooted in the way things really are. It's not accommodated to this time, but comes straight from the peaceful kingdom. So I'd like now to move from the general to the specific. From the widest rationale behind Jesus' instructions to their very specific application. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And so Jesus leaves aside the question of murder. Not that he condones it, but that he wants to address the matter. Not at the end of the line, but at the very beginning. He bypasses the physical act of murder and addresses its spiritual and emotional and psychological origins. The anger of one's heart. In other words, we can steer clear of murder altogether by addressing the spring from which it flows. And so the father is not minimally concerned with the physical act of murder, as if simply not doing that were the litmus test of one's piety and devotion. Rather, Jesus teaches that he sees and cares about the heart, the inner person. And the inner reality, what it tells us is that anger itself is implicitly murderous. And that implicitly murderous attitude expresses itself in one's speech. Even the phrase Jesus says, you good for nothing or you fool, are liable to wind one up before the authorities, and if not, still worse, before or in the fiery Gehenna. Judgment, he says, just there in the heart. And so surely, there are different varieties of anger. Not all of them are murderous, and a few of them are good. Jesus teaches us that righteous anger, which stems from zeal, is indeed a good and necessary thing. Yet, that's not the variety of anger that Jesus condemns. It's the murderous kind. And I was thinking about this in my own life. And it led me to take account of what most would consider rather trivial moments of anger. Trying to work and and the Wi-Fi is not working. Or my dog pestering me while I'm trying to get something done. Or other things like that. And I realized that in those moments, specifically because the object of my anger is not another human, it's easy to check it when it's another human. I'm not going to lash out at someone right there. But because it's not a human, I give myself way too much slack. I take a tone of voice and I use certain harsh words that I would be embarrassed to use in anyone else's company. 
that anger is there simmering beneath the surface. And it's clear in those moments just how true Jesus' words are. It's a murderous anger. It's checked toward humans, but vented toward anything else. And that seed, right, it's already present. It's not in full growth and full flower, but it's there. But if I allowed it to grow, and if I nurtured that anger, it will grow up into what it wants to become. We know where that would end. And so Jesus' words about anger teach us just how close to the precipice we all really stand when it comes to anger. Because anger, once it seizes our minds, it has the power to distort our lives thoroughly. So his counsel, therefore, is rather simple. Stop any murderous anger before it begins and seek reconciliation immediately. Uh, following on our passage, Matthew, 23, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, it says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering on the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So as soon as the words good for nothing or fool begin to form on our lips, we are to leave what we're doing and seek immediate redress, not giving that anger time to simmer and foment, but silencing it, closing that door as soon as it begins to speak. Or if you want to put things more simply, the sixth commandment, interpreted according to its spirit, instructs us to be peacemakers. Matthew chapter 5 verse 19, one of those beatitudes I was talking about, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of of God. So the commandment understood according to its truest intent is not about the bare minimum, not slaying each other in the streets, but actively pursuing peace with one another. Such is the spirit of the commandment. And we turn to Jesus' life as the model of peacemaking. He came to reconcile man to God and man to man. And what do we learn from Jesus about peacemaking? Quite simply, that it's costly. Surely he could have come and imposed his will by force. Who can resist his power? Matthew 26, verses 52 and 53. Then Jesus said to him, this is after Peter tried to defend Jesus with the sword, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Of course he could. But such is not true reconciliation. It's just submission. It's sheer submission. One can submit without reconciliation, but there cannot be reconciliation without submission. And so Jesus makes peace not by asserting his power, but by relinquishing it. As we read just a while ago, no one has taken my life away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. And so really, Jesus is the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill incarnate. There is one who has come to steal and to kill and destroy the serpent. But the good shepherd has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus himself is the spirit of the commandment. He refused the protection of, of his disciples, disarming them. 
He answered not a word to his accusers. He patiently endured beating and scourging and mocking. And from the cross he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And finally, on the third day, the eighth day, today, he rose from the grave, not to destroy those who put him to death, not to come back to bring vengeance upon them, but to extend toward them forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he is our example. As we wind this down, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23 for you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So his patient endurance is not only our reconciliation. Right? He, he not only did that for us, but it provides a template on how we are to reconcile others. All other paths, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, are obsolete for the church. The shadow has given way to the substance. The kingdom of God has come. And so it's our calling to be peacemakers. And that is inevitably a painful calling. Because for one to overcome sin, it always requires a sin bearer. Someone who, like Jesus, takes the destruction and ruin brought upon by sin and bears it away, and buries it in mercy, and love, and compassion, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. That's what our calling means. So, turning to our relationships, at work, at home, with our spouse, with our children, whatever, the Spirit may be calling you to turn the other cheek, either metaphorically or literally, He may be calling you to go the extra mile in a certain situation with a certain difficult person, extending more mercy where it's been exhausted. He may be calling you to bless and to love and to pray for someone who has it out for you. Again, it's just very simple. As Jesus has done for us, we are to do for others. And so at last we learn in considering the commandment, that human life isn't ultimate, right? God protects it. And he says, you shall not kill. But it's not ultimate. There are times when life needs to be taken or life needs to be laid down. And in our case, we're called to give our lives, if necessary, to bring God's peace to the world, just like Jesus, just like our Lord did. So let's pray.